Well, good morning, Bridgeway. Happy Easter to you. I'm so excited to be here together with us. This is the best day. Uh, death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. We serve a living God, and in this church, we should shout, Amen. Can I get an Amen this morning? Amen. amen. Man, it is so good. Yes, you can clap for that. I want to welcome you if you're here today as a guest, if you've been invited to be here this morning, or maybe you came yesterday and your kids were running around picking up Easter eggs, or maybe you were here Friday as part of our Good Friday service. Uh, we couldn't be more grateful and excited to have you a part of our Easter celebration. I want to take a moment, too, and welcome all of those who are joining us at Church Online, Church at Home. We are so grateful, again, that you can be a part of our experience today. You're also going to get a special treat. There is worship music included as part of this service, so if you're online, stay tuned all the way to the end and uh, join our worship team as they celebrate with you. But it's just, it's a great day, and it's a good day uh, for all of us to be together as the church. You know, I was thinking this week just about how uh, this past year, for many people, it's just been sort of kind of one hit after the other. I mean, one bit of bad news after another swipe of bad news. And this Easter, more than ever, I just feel like we need good news. We need hope. And that good news is what I want to share with you this morning. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus should offer us the greatest of all news and the greatest of truth to put our hope in. So I just want to talk for a few minutes this morning about the hope of Easter. In fact, to kind of get you thinking about this idea, let me just ask you, I, I don't know what you came in here this morning kind of with maybe the top thing on your mind or maybe the top 10 things on your mind, but let me just ask you this morning, what are you hoping for? And maybe if you were asked that later this afternoon, um, maybe how would that be different from this morning? Uh, maybe your mind is kind of all wrapped up in, in a long list of things to do, and you're just kind of hoping you can get through the day. Maybe you're thinking about uh, this next week, and maybe you got some really big things coming up at work, and, and you got kind of like hope that maybe you can seal the deal or, or get the job done or finish a project or get a promotion. Maybe your hope is aligned that way. And maybe your hope is for, is for a relationship. Maybe you're experiencing some, some, some fractures, some friendships around you that, that haven't been all that great, and you're just kind of hoping you can mend the fence with a few people. Um, maybe your hope is around health. Been a lot of news about health in the past year, and, and you're just hoping you can stay healthy, or you're hoping for the health of someone that you love. See, the strange thing about hope is, is it's sort of hardwired into us. We, we all hope for something. And while you may grow out of a lot of things, you never outgrow hope. Think about it. When you're a kid, you're probably hopeful that you, you make the team, right? Or maybe you're hopeful that you, you get the grades, and you go through life and you kind of, maybe your hopes change, but you never stop hoping. I was thinking this week about how um, there are certain maybe times in history that are, are more hopeful than others. In fact, some people live through periods of time that, that are really hopeful and other people live through periods of time where it's kind of hard to scrape together some hope. In fact, uh, I was reading about a period of time right after the U.S. won the War of 1812 over England. And if you read from that time, it's interesting how authors and writers will all reflect on how the United States had this incredible sense of unity and aligned purpose. In fact, uh, historians will call the, the period from 1812 to 1825 the era of good feelings. You like that? Like, 
all the feels, right? I mean, just it, it felt so good then. And, and you kind of wonder, like, man, what would it what would it be like to have that back again? I was looking at this picture, and, you know, the people all seem so happy. And it kind of looks like it could be, you know, Main Street, USA. Like, that's the corner bar on the corner there. And, you know, just everybody just having a great time together. And it got me thinking, like, what will historians say about this period of time? I mean, what will they label maybe the 2020s? Uh, what will they call this? Will they call this maybe the, the era of political discourse, um, the era of inequality and injustice, maybe the era of mainstream media and big tech corporations, right? Maybe they'll call this the, the era of hopelessness. In fact, it's kind of interesting, before COVID hit, uh, the CDC had put out a really big report. And I know everyone, you hear the word CDC, and you just immediately think of COVID uh, reports that they've put out. But actually, just before COVID, the CDC put out a report that was not that encouraging. They found that for the first time in a hundred years, there was a three-year stretch where uh, life expectancy decreased here in the United States. And it wasn't because of the things that you would expect. It wasn't because of uh, cancer or heart disease or COVID. COVID wasn't even on the scene yet. It was actually what they labeled as diseases of despair. Um, things like anxiety and depression, opioid ad- addiction, and suicide. Getting all kind of warm and fuzzy this morning, just kind of feeling all the cheery vibes this morning. They actually found that during this period of time, uh, marriage had decreased and so had uh, birth rates. People were having less children. And now the CDC has reported kind of a, a new disease, kind of the disease not of despair, but of desperation, acts of violence, mass shootings. And you can kind of wonder, like, what will be my response? How do you respond when it seems like the world is just this era of hopelessness? Well, some people would choose to maybe stick their head in the sands, like literally just kind of hide out and maybe hope that this would all just go away. In fact, if you have enough money, uh, you might be able to do that. In fact, I don't know if you've seen this. It's kind of all the rage these days, these, these billionaire bunkers. Have you heard about these? That people actually, if you have enough money, you can actually build a home underground, large homes, like bigger than my house, like 13,000 square foot homes. And these are like not simple homes. These are like decked out. You can get your billionaire bunker with a uh, home theater, uh, some with bowling alleys in the basement, home gyms, greenhouses. I mean, you can literally, you can sit underground, binge watch your favorite Netflix shows, and, you know, like work on your 310 split. Like you could literally do that and just hope that the world gets better. And if that's your choice, then I think you're going to be waiting a long time because hope is not found in an era. Hope is not found in history. Hope is found in a person. And that's the good news of Easter that I want to share. I want to ask you again, what do you put your hope in? And I want to tell you this morning that it's because of Jesus, because of this resurrection, that hope has a name. Hope is a person. And we can find our hope in Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus, it's really quite remarkable. He lived about 2,000 years ago, and Jesus never wrote a book. He never ran for office. He didn't teach in a college university, yet his life and his teachings are the most studied and debated of all time. In fact, uh, his message was one that people to this day, it's reached every corner of the world. History, you would say, actually turns on the birth of Jesus. Uh, We go from B.C., before Christ, to A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 
because of Jesus. All of our major holidays are about Jesus. We celebrate his birth at Christmas. We celebrate his resurrection here on Easter. And he came into the world perfect and sinless and with a message that offered kind of the religious status quo of the day, which was all about rules. He offered the alternative that instead of rules, you could actually have a relationship with God. And the people in that day did what many people do today. They rejected his message. In fact, they didn't just reject his message. They rejected him. They despised him. They hated him. Uh, As you know, as we recalled the story on Good Friday, they didn't just despise him. They beat him. They whipped him. They drove stakes in his hands and in his ankles. They hung him on a cross. And after six hours, Jesus cried out, yelled out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus gave up his life. And it's in that moment that the Bible tells us that a Roman soldier came with a spear, and they did this as a practice to make sure that the victim was dead. They would stab the victim into the side. And sure enough, the Bible tells us that blood and water spilled out. Jesus was most certainly dead. And Jesus was so poor, he didn't even have a grave. He Uh, His body was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, and he was laid in his tomb. It was a rented tomb, and he was put there, and everyone knew where Jesus was laid to rest. They buried him with about 100 pounds of burial spices, placed him in the tomb, airtight, put a, a stone over it, sealed it with the Roman government seal, and even placed a guard outside of it. Everyone knew where Jesus' dead body was. Uh, The Romans knew, the Pharisees knew, even the disciples of Jesus knew exactly where they placed him. And what's so interesting about this day is, though it was prophesied, though Jesus told them many times that on the third day he would be resurrected, that he wouldn't be in this tomb, that he didn't need a paid-for tomb, he wouldn't be staying there for very long. Even though he told them that, the strange thing is that on the day of the resurrection, there wasn't a single person that actually thought that that would happen. In fact, people in that day believed kind of what I think many of us believe today, that dead people stay dead, right? I mean, that's just kind of how it works. And so, on the very first Easter morning, you can read through all of the gospel accounts. Not one person was expecting a resurrection. They didn't show up as we do on Sunday wearing pastels and beautiful flowers and saying, you know, all right, on the count of three, he is risen, right? They didn't didn't say that. They didn't expect that at all. In fact, it's kind of interesting when you look at sort of these responses to the resurrected Jesus. And I thought what we would do today is, is look at all of them. We would look at all four accounts, uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, all, each one of them, because I want you to see kind of this theme of what people respond when they meet the resurrected Jesus. We're going to first start in Mark chapter 16. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Also, the words will be on the screen for you as well. And we'll kind of just work through each one of these accounts, and it'll lead us for an opportunity to trust Jesus with our lives. This first account from Mark would have been the oldest. This would have been the oldest writing an account of the uh, resurrected Jesus. And these are the women when they come to the tomb. Notice their response. Mark 16, verse 8, it says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Kind of a theme you're going to pick up on this morning is on Resurrection Sunday, they weren't singing and clapping their hands. They were afraid. They were trembling. They were bewildered. They were scared for their lives. A couple things. First of all, they thought that if the Romans would execute Jesus, what would stop them from executing anyone who followed Jesus? They were scared for their own life. 
And then the second thing would be kind of this idea that, you know, if Jesus came back, I mean, I'll just tell you for a moment, like, you should be very glad that I'm not Jesus, all right? Just, let's just kind of put the record to bed, because if you did that to me, right? Like, I mean, if you beat me, and you spit on me, and you drove stakes in my hands and in my feet so I couldn't run again, and you pulled out my beard, the little bit of hair I got left on my face, and I came back, oh, you bet I'm paying you a visit, right? Like, you better believe it. And so they're probably afraid. Every single one of them deserted Jesus. And the book of Mark ends this way. It doesn't end happily ever after. It ends, they were afraid. And you look at the life of Jesus, you look at him in this moment, and he doesn't come back with any sense of vengeance. In fact, Jesus has kind of this, this thought really about, you know, really there's more important things than your fear over me coming back. In fact, look at Matthew 28. I want you to see how Jesus responds to the first disciples. This is now told through the eyes of Matthew. Matthew 28, starting in verse 9, it says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Again, we have this theme, Jesus having to remind them, do not be afraid. I mean, but these words of Jesus, I mean, he starts off with greetings. He sounds more like, like Mr. Rogers, right? Like greetings, neighbor. I mean, he's, he's not mad. He's not angry. He's, he's kind of got this other sense. He's got this idea that there is kingdom work to be done. And these are the women who first see Jesus, and you can see their response is, is very normal, very human, right? I mean, they've lost Jesus once, and they don't want to lose him again. So what do they do? They do what we would do. They, they embrace Jesus, right? They're clasping his feet. They're worshiping him. They don't ever want to let him go. And what does Jesus say to, say to them? He says, go. Don't be a clinger. Nobody likes a clinger, right? Like, like leave. In fact, we've got bigger work to do. See, what looks like the end is actually just the beginning. And I got to tell you this morning, especially if you've been following Jesus for a long time, maybe, maybe this is like your umpteenth Easter celebration. And you can kind of get in this pattern of thinking, you know, well, oh, ho-hum, I've heard this a million times, Pastor. Well, I've, I've preached this a number of times, so I, I know what you mean. But I think there's something about the resurrection that should, that should kind of excite and enliven us every single time. And if for nothing else, it should be this reminder that what looks like the end is actually just the beginning. What looks like the finish line is actually a brand new starting line. I know, I know. Sometimes, sometimes in your Christian faith and your walk, you can start thinking, well, you know, come on, pastor. I've done that before. I've read all those accounts. I've read my Bible. I've read all the way from Genesis to Revelation. I've been in a small group. I've gone on a mission trip. You know, I've done all these things. And yet the reality is, is this this resurrected Jesus says that is not a finish line, that there's always the opportunity to push your faith further into the future with Jesus. And I want to just challenge you today, especially if you've been walking in the faith for a long time, what, what is God challenging and calling you to into the future, a new starting line in your faith, a new opportunity to trust Jesus. See, what happens in this story is it's sort of comical because these disciples just don't get it. They just don't get the power of this man. They don't get the power of the resurrection, and they definitely don't get the power that's available to them as he works through their lives. 
And Jesus just keeps kind of sharing this story. He keeps trying to show them how real he is. Jesus in this moment is the most real a human being could ever be. In fact, look at this encounter in Luke 24. Look at these um, these verses, starting in verse 37. It says, they were startled and frightened. Again, they're still scared. Thinking they saw a ghost, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I love this about Jesus. Jesus kind of anticipates. He goes there before we could even get there, right? Like, what's the first thought when, when someone would come back to life? You would think, paranormal, right? I mean, like, like before the TV show even hits, right? Like, this is a ghost. This is a phantom. And Jesus says, I am the most real you will ever experience. Look at my hands. Uh, touch. You can tell that I am real. I am really alive. And they're still so startled. They're still so frightened. Jesus was not a ghost, and he lived that out. In fact, Jesus would spend 40 days with his disciples. In fact, hundreds of people would see the resurrected Jesus. They would eat breakfast with Jesus. Uh, dead people don't do that. Ghosts don't do that. Jesus is saying over and over again, you have the opportunity to experience this newness of life with me. Really smart guy by the name of N.T. Wright, one of my absolute favorite theologians, says this about this day. He says, it is extremely strange and extremely interesting that at no point do the writers of the Gospels mention the future hope for the Christian. They were too scared to have hope. How about you this morning? How's your hope? Kind of where are you at on the, on the scale of 1 to 10 with your hopefulness for the future? You see, I, I think we need to move in this direction, even if at times we feel doubtful. One of my favorite responses during the resurrection appearances, appearances comes from a guy named Thomas. You know Thomas, right? You know him better as Doubting Thomas, and he has this issue. He has to see it for himself. He cannot take anyone else's word for it. And so he sort of says that. In John 20, he makes this point. He says, but he, being Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where that spear hit him, I will not believe. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You know, a lot of times people have sort of this existential problem with God, right? Like, I can't see God. I, I can't touch God. And Jesus knows that. In fact, I would say you don't have an existential problem. You have an experiential problem with God. And what you need to do is you need to get involved in the church and around people who believe in Jesus and allow them to be part of what builds your faith together. Thomas needed the people around him to encourage him to stay the course in his faith. You know, some might say, well, this just seems, this just seems so bizarre. In fact, pastor, this whole thing just seems, I don't know, it just seems so exclusive. You know, the, one of the top rejections of Jesus is, is what he says and how following him is to be exclusive. And Jesus not only says that it's exclusive in following him, it's also the most loving thing he could say. Oh, come on, pastor. You mean I have to believe this story? I have to believe he was resurrected? I have to believe that all other religions and worldviews are wrong? I mean, what if you're wrong, pastor? Well, I would say this is what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that I am the way and the truth 
and the life, and no one comes to the Father but me. You might push back on that. You say, I don't like that. Well, I'll be honest with you. There's probably a lot of things that you don't like, but just because you don't like something doesn't mean that it's not true. I'll give you an example. How many of you own a scale at home, right? (laughs) Do you always like what that thing says? I get on that thing and two things happen. Number one, I immediately become like a little attorney. Like I debate with that thing. Like you cannot be right again. And the second thing happens is it's always true. It's always right. And so just because you don't believe it or just because you don't like it, it doesn't mean that it's not true. But it's also the most loving thing for Jesus to say, I am exclusive. I am the way and the truth and the life. I want to give you three reasons this morning as to how you can trust your life with this Jesus, how this power of the resurrection, how this hope can be true in your life. And it has to do with three things that Jesus said. And these kind of just become what I would call sort of the case for Christ or the case for following Jesus Christ with your life. If you're looking for hope, if you want the power of hope available to you, I want to just mention these three things in closing. The first thing I would say is that Jesus came down from heaven. You can trust Jesus with your life because he came from the place that I would say most people I talk to want to go to someday. Jesus said in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven. Now, why is this important? Well, well, let me just ask you something. When you are getting directions from somebody, do you want directions from someone who's been there or someone who's never been there, right? Or maybe in an area of life, do you want advice from someone who's an expert in the field Or do you want advice from just, well, just anyone? Just anyone can give you advice on life or skills that you need. You want advice from the expert. And Jesus said, when it comes to heaven, I am the expert. I came down from heaven. I was thinking about this week about how a number of years ago, Sean and I uh, got to go away on vacation, and we went to uh, Whistler in British Columbia. And it's just an absolutely beautiful area. In fact, if you've never been to Whistler, take a plane, fly to Seattle, rent a car, drive north to Vancouver. Vancouver is the most beautiful big city I've ever been to. It's so clean, uh, whales in the harbor. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Keep driving north on what's called the Sea to Sky Highway. About three hours north, you'll come to uh, uh, Whistler. And we decided to go uh, ziplining one day. And I don't know if you realize this, but ziplining it's a pretty sketchy hobby. I'll just say that. Like, the whole thing about it is just really sketchy. I mean, it starts with the waiver that you sign, and they make you write down next of kin, you know, and, and you climb up these really big trees, and you go zipping across this gorge, just these beautiful vistas, but you're hanging literally by a thread, by a cable. And I know, I know, you're wearing a helmet, so of course you should be safe, Right? And, and don't forget, you've got a tour guide. That's supposed to be the reassuring part. And for me, it just wasn't. Like, I'm climbing up these trees, and I'm standing on these rickety platforms, and go ahead, Sean, you go first, you know? And, and uh, whew, I'll, stay, I'll take, someone's got to watch the kids, you know? I'll stay back. And, and I find this guide thing just being so, like, what are you going to really do? Like, how are you guiding me? Like, I take the carabiner that it looks like you got from Walmart, and I hook it to the line, and then zing, you know, I go flying down this hill. And after about three zips, I'm starting to feel a little bit more confident because I'm still alive. And so I lean over to the, the guide, and I say, so, so where are you from? And I'm expecting he's like a mountain boy, you know, he's kind of all rugged, and I'm thinking he's probably grew up in this area. And he says, no, 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 I, I grew up in Australia. I said, Australia, that's odd. I didn't know they ziplined. I didn't know they had any mountains in Australia. He goes, no, no, I never... 
I never ziplined until last summer. I just learned. And I'm like, wow, I'm so glad I've trusted my life into your hands. Go again, Sean. Go again, you know. We want an expert. God lives in heaven, and we live on earth. And if we want to go to heaven, then we need to trust this Jesus. In fact, I find that there are so many questions about heaven. I spend a lot of my time as a pastor uh, kind of fielding them. And I just decided that, uh, that we would have a conversation about what heaven is actually like. And so I want to invite you to come back next week. We've got a brand new series kicking off called What's Heaven Like? And I want to answer some of the questions that I hear, like, is, is heaven boring? And who am I going to meet in heaven? Who's not going to be there in heaven? Uh, try to answer these from a biblical foundation. So if you've got questions about heaven, come back next week. If you've got friends or family members that wonder about that stage, uh, then just, again, invite them to come and be a part of our church here or online as we look forward to digging in. Okay, so that's the first reason Jesus came down. Second thing you need to know, and that the reason you can trust God, is that Jesus is God. He says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. We are bonded together. Uh, we are in this as one person. You know, in that day, in that uh, religious system, if you claimed to be God, if you said that you were God, it was punishable by death. You said you were God, that's blasphemy. They would bend down, pick up a rock, and get ready to throw it at your face. That's kind of the way it went. It was a one-time offense. You only said that once. And so if you imagine that, if you said something like that, like, I am God, and then they asked you again, did you really mean that? You know, someone might get a little scared and say, no, 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 I, I didn't mean I am God. I, I'm dyslexic. I, I meant I am dog, right? Like, I, I got it backwards. And Jesus never did that. Jesus never backed down from the statement. And they ultimately would kill him for that reason, from saying, I and the Father am one. He never backed down. He came from the Father because he is the Father. And he offers us this relationship in, in our walk with him. So Jesus came down, Jesus is God, and the third reason that you can trust Jesus and that you can have hope on this Easter is the good news is that Jesus forgives. I mean, I know you've come here and you've probably got a lot of things on your mind. Um, you've probably got a lot of things that you're wrestling and working through. You might even come to church and you might even kind of be feeling like you've got a lot of problems in life. And I want to tell you, I actually want to invite you, I want to plead with you this morning that of all the problems you have in life, you have the solution for Jesus to take care of your biggest problem. And your biggest problem is a sin problem. My biggest problem is a sin problem. And we all have sin in our lives. And the only way to deal with that is to have someone who is perfect and sinless pay the price. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. For anyone who walks with him, who invites him into his life, you have the opportunity to have all of your sins forgiven. In all the problems you have, I'm going to invite you in this moment to let Jesus take care of your biggest problem, your sin problem. The worship team is joining me, and they're going to lead us in a time of just reflection. And as they do, I would just ask that you bow your head and that you pray with me, please. God in heaven, I just begin by saying I am so glad that you came down, that your son Jesus, who is perfect in every way, lived a perfect and sinless life, live that for me and for everyone within the sound of my voice this morning. That Jesus, you went to the cross and on the cross, all of sin died. Jesus, that good news, that mercy, that atonement that you offer is available to anyone who would just simply invite you in. To just say in their heart, just to say, Jesus, I need you. 
that I am a sinner in need of rescue. And with those words, with that admission, God, you say that you come in and you begin to build a life new from the inside out. What good news. Your grace is free. It's not cheap. It costs you your life. But it is free and available for anyone who, who believes. And so, God, we just together, we just as a community, we just lift our hearts and our voices up to you, the one who saves. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. This podcast is a service of Bridgeway Community Church in Rockford, Michigan. Visit bridgewaycommunity.org for more information and other messages.